0: Father, we now come to your book, your word, which is so powerful and has always been powerful to every generation, revealing truth and convicting of sin and righteousness and judgment and and calling us into relationship with you to enter into the new covenant. And even, Father, back in the Old Testament, you called the nations to enter into covenant with you, a covenant that would be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ, who has come and who has accomplished everything for your glory. And now, Father, we as new covenant believers look back with wonder at your sovereign, majestic plan, and we praise you, and we give you thanks for it. Oh, Lord, help us now to see your word for what it is, to understand it as you intended it to be understood. And may your people leave here today encouraged and strengthened and convicted Please, Father, send your Spirit to do whatever needs to be done in my heart and in the heart of your people, this family of Christ here, that we would become more like him. We long to be less like me and more like Jesus. Make it so, Father, for we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, I'd like for us to begin turning our attention to an ancient book, that comparatively few of us have ever seriously studied or considered. In fact, I would not hesitate to suggest that there are probably people sitting in this room or watching me on TV down the hall or listening to me on the Internet who have never read this book, and probably only one or two in this whole congregation who could tell us what it's about. It's a curiously short book, consists only of three chapters that the average reader really could sift through in probably 15 minutes or less, if you're a slow reader, 20 minutes. It was written in six, six centuries before Jesus was born, but its message is as relevant today as it was the day it was first penned. In fact, it was a short phrase from this book that provided a young monk by the name of Martin Luther with the spark that God used to ignite the fires of the Great Reformation. Namely, the just shall live by faith. He found it in Romans. Paul found it in Habakkuk. Scholars know very little about the author of this book, his lineage, his education, whether or not he was married, whether he had any children, These will always remain mysteries. We do know, however, that he was a Hebrew by birth. He was Judean by nationality. And that he was a prophet of the Lord Most High. His name was Habakkuk. If you are taking notes, if you are a child wondering how to spell it, it kind of has a little ring to it when you spell it. You may hear the children saying it afterwards. H a b a k k u k. That's how I remember how to spell it. H a b a k k u k. You okay with that? <laughs> Habakkuk. We had a fun time this week, listening to one another try to pronounce it. Is it Habakkuk. Habakak. It's Habakkuk. I'm, I'm giving you the defining or the defining pronunciation here. Well, for the next several weeks, I think we will. Be both challenged and blessed as we fixed our attention on this little book tucked away in obscurity in the final pages of the Old Testament. When you turn to it, your pages may creak and groan for lack of use. But before we begin, it might be best for us to answer a few important questions. For example, someone might ask, why should we study the Old Testament? I mean, didn't we just learn in the book of Hebrews that the Old Covenant is obsolete Why go back to the Old Testament? Well, that's a good question. Good question. Someone might ask, well, how can we begin to benefit from such an obscure Old Testament book since most of us know so little about the Old Testament? And that's a good question. And finally, someone might suggest maybe, We should begin by getting a feel for the message of the book as a whole before we start looking at its parts, and I think that's a fine suggestion. In fact, uh, all three of these things came to my mind as I was studying it this week. I thought, you know, we're going to jump into an Old Testament book, and and I think people are going to wonder, why are you using Sunday morning to preach from a minor prophet? I actually had a pretty pretty well-known speaker who came to Calvary years ago. And uh, back when I was preaching Jonah, and he looked at me and he said, a minor prophet on Sunday morning? And I said, word of God? (laughs) And he said, touche. I love it when I can get him to speak French. And so these three issues are are ones that I think we need to cover before we begin looking at the text in detail and in specific. And so uh, what I want to do this morning is... To turn to the book of Habakkuk and consider three things. Number one, the foundation of Habakkuk, or I'm calling it Habakkuk's foundation, which is really just the Old Testament. This will kind of start us in on the Old Testament. And the question, the first question that I raised was why? Why do we go to the Old Testament? Why did we go to Jonah? Why did we go to Ruth? And why are we now going to Habakkuk? Isn't that old school? Isn't that old covenant? Isn't that Old Testament? Aren't we New Covenant New Testament believers? And the answer to that question is yes, of course we are. And then I want to look at Habakkuk's history, his historical setting. And and for that, uh, I'm going to give you a jet tour of the history of Israel in 10 minutes or less. Boy, time's already slipping away. What happened? I must have talked too much earlier. And then the third thing I want to look at is uh, Habakkuk's message. What is the message of Habakkuk in just a, a few paragraphs? What is he talking about and why should we be concerned about this book so let's begin with the foundation of the of habakkuk and that is the old testament and starting with the question why should we study the old testament who cares since we're new testament believers the messiah has come jesus has risen and he has risen indeed and the spirit has come and the church is formed and why do we need the old testament well we need the old testament and we should know the old testament because the foundation of the book of habakkuk is the Old Testament, and the, 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 the foundation for all of the New Testament is the book of Habakkuk. If the Old Testament is obsolete, why should we invest any time reading and wrestling with this truth? The answer is simply this, that the Old Testament is no less the Word of God than the New Testament is. The coming of the new covenant may have made the old covenant obsolete, but it did not make the Old Testament irrelevant. It didn't. It did not make the Old Testament irrelevant to New Testament Christians. At least it wasn't irrelevant to Jesus, and it wasn't irrelevant to the apostles. I mean, consider this. Every New Testament teaching, all the essential doctrines of the New Testament are based upon and rooted in the Old Testament. If it were not so, the Apostles could never have convinced any Jew to receive it. He had to demonstrate that what Christ had done and what the Spirit was doing was consistent with what had been said in the Old Testament. One of our young guys who who was down on a street corner sharing the gospel at the uh, stockyards uh, the other day, ran into a, a girl that he was talking to, and she said, why don't the Jews accept what you're saying? And I don't know what his answer is, but I know what I would answer. I would answer, yes, you're right, they don't. But the New Testament is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And that's why so many Jews have received it. And even in Jesus' day, so many priests received the message of the cross because they could see that it was indeed consistent with the Old Testament promises and prophecies. That it could not have been any other way. Jesus could not possibly have fulfilled so many Old Testament prophecies. He had no control over his birth or his lineage or any of that stuff, it made it absolutely impossible for him to have contrived it. And so we should study the Old Testament because the New Testament and everything in it is grounded in Old Testament truth. We need to understand that the Old Testament was the only Bible that Jesus ever read. Understand that? And the Old Testament was the only Bible the apostles ever read, at least until under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, new documents were being produced by them under the authority of Jesus. In fact, Jesus said in Luke 24, 44, Jesus said, these are my words which I, sh- which I spoke to you while I was still with you that all things listen all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled and they were you remember this passage in the new testament second timothy 3:16 and 17 most of you can probably quote this text because it's so important the Apostle Paul wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and said, All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be equipped in every good work. Now, was Paul writing in New Testament or Old Testament times? New Testament. Was he referring to New Testament or Old Testament Scriptures? Most of the New Testament had not been written. He was primarily speaking of the Old Testament. All Scripture, Genesis to Malachi. And anything that would come after that, that would be consistent with Genesis through Malachi, is profitable. Don't ditch the Old Testament just because Christ has come. Peter wrote these words, no prophecy of Scripture it's a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of the human will, but men moved of the Holy Spirit spoke from God. 2 Peter 1:20 20 and 21. Guess what he was referring to? He wasn't referring to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. It's not the scripture he's talking about. He was speaking of the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophecies. And yet this was one of Jesus' disciples. This was Peter. And he was pointing us, New Testament believers, to the Old Testament. And this becomes supremely important when we begin to realize that when the New Testament writers drew exegetical and theological conclusions, it was from material in the law, the prophets, and the writings of the Old Testament. And consider this about the apostles. All, all of their evangelism, their discipleship, their church planting, all of it was ordered by what they considered the teaching of God's Word in the Old Testament. So, if you ever wonder why we make an effort from time to time to unpack a book from the Old Testament, it is because we believe the Old Testament is just as much a part of the Word of God as the New Testament is. More than that, we believe it is not possible to fully understand the New Testament Hear this: It is not possible to fully understand the Old Testament without considering the teaching of the, new, of the old I'm sorry, yeah, the New Testament without, what did I say? It's not possible to fully understand the New Testament without a, without a good working understanding of the Old Testament. Listen, if we didn't understand something of the Old Testament, the whole study we just wrapped up, those 60, 62 or 63 messages or 72, 73 messages in the book of Hebrews, um, uh, getting the interpretation right would have been impossible because we would have had no idea what he was talking about. No idea. And so the Old Testament is crucial. This is the foundation of our study of Habakkuk. We must go back and relearn and recap, and we need someone who knows something about the Old Testament to help us. And so we come to the Old Testament. Now, second, the study of this book, Habakkuk, requires an understanding not only of Habakkuk's foundation, and that is the Old Testament, but specifically Habakkuk's history, which is all of Jewish history. We must understand Jewish history, the nation of Israel, before we can understand what Habakkuk is talking about. Now, by that I mean this. If you were to sit down right now uh, or right after church today, it won't be, it won't be fair after church because you will have already heard the history of Israel, but if you, had, if you had sat down before you came into this room, having known nothing about the history of Israel, and sat down and read this book, you'd come away scratching your head and saying, that's why I never, I never read this stuff. I, I, don't, I don't understand it. I don't know what he's talking about. But if you understand Old Testament history, then this book will make sense. And so, are you ready? Let's start from the beginning. As you know, Israel's history begins all the way back in the book of Genesis, where God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to become the father of the nation God had chosen for himself out of all the nations of the earth. And through a divine miracle, Abraham's wife, Sarah, though she was more than 90 years old, gave birth to a son, and his name was Isaac. And it was so extraordinary that she, at that age, would have a son that it, it made her laugh. In fact, it made her laugh when the angel told her she was going to have a son, and it made everybody rejoice when she had a son. I mean, imagine going down to the local nursing home and, and finding a 90-year-old woman who is just about to give birth. I mean, it, it, it's... It, if it weren't so weird, it would be funny, but it was, it was a cause for great rejoicing, and it was so unusual, and so they named him Isaac, which means laughter. And so Isaac was born just as God had promised, and Isaac grew up, and he got married, and he had a son, and the and son's name was Jacob. One of his sons' name was Jacob, whose name God changed to Israel. Jacob had 12 sons who became known as the children of Israel. You see how this works? Some of these terms you've known, but maybe you didn't know the roots of. And they each, each of these 12 sons of Jacob, whose name is now Israel, they are the children of Israel. Each of them became heads of their families after them, who eventually became known as the 12 tribes of Israel, from the 12 sons of Jacob, whose name became Israel Israel. Now, you remember that beyond the 12 sons of Israel, there was one favored son whose name was Joseph, whom his brothers hated. In fact, they hated him so much that they sold him into slavery, and they told his daddy that your favorite son has been killed by a wild animal. See Exhibit A, the multicolored coat that you gave him, and the bloodstains on it. We don't know what happened, but he's gone. They lied. They lied. Rather than commit murder, which some of the brothers wanted to do, the eldest son said, no, let's not kill him, let's sell him. And then you see the marvelous providence of God as the people, the men who purchased Joseph took him to Egypt, where through a series of sovereignly orchestrated events, Jacob goes from servant in the captain of a guard's house to prison, having been accused of a crime he never committed, to being a help to uh, the Pharaoh, who had a dream and nobody could interpret except Joseph, who was in prison. And through this series of events, Joseph became the prime minister of Israel. The brothers thought they were getting rid of him. Now he's prime minister, second only to Pharaoh, of the most powerful nation in the world. And then something terrible happened a famine struck, and Jacob and his 12 sons had to go somewhere for food, and where do you think they went? To Egypt, where, by God's grace, they reconciled with their brother. That's a whole other story in itself. But there, Israel, now a nation, now really not a nation, just a people, the children of Israel are now in Egypt, and they stayed there for 400 years, just exactly what God told Abraham would happen to his descendants. They would live in Egypt for 400 years, which they did. And at the end of the 400 years, Pharaoh was afraid that God was blessing them so much, and there were so many of them, he was fearful that they would take over his country, so he enslaved them. But it didn't matter. They kept growing and growing and growing. And so God sent Moses to rescue them from the land of Egypt and take them out of the land and in, out, of, out of Egypt, into the land, God promised Abraham and his descendants forever. And so Moses comes, and God sent the ten plagues, which ended the very, with the very last plague that took the firstborn of every child of Egypt and established the feast of the Passover, which every faithful Jew to this day still celebrates. God then led his people, you remember, through the Red Sea, And to the mountain, Mount Sinai, where he revealed himself to them and gave them his law. There he consecrated them as his people and made them a nation. And he made them a nation by giving them his law. They had law. It was the very law that this country, the United States of America, is based on. He gave them law, and they became a nation. And the law was the basis of what he called his covenant with them, which was like a marriage between himself and his people. That's why when the people, when Moses was up on the mountain talking with God, and the people built the idol, and and Moses came down and found it and, and, and smashed the tablets, it was as if he was saying, before our marriage is hardly even Consummated, You have violated it. Marriage off. And he smashed the tablets of the covenant. And the people repented. Moses went back up the mountain. And God said, I'll forgive him. Let's do this again. And reinstituted the covenant. And the people said to Moses when they heard the terms of the covenant, whatever the Lord says, we will do. And so they began following God. They began as his people, wherever he led, they followed. This, To this, the fledgling nation promised that they would do everything the Lord said. So the Lord led them through the desert to the border of the promised land, right up to the border of the promised land. You know how long it took them to get from Mount Sinai to the promised land? I think it was five days. It didn't take any time at all. But they get to the promised land and they sent the spies, 12 spies, went to spy on Canaan. You remind, all the children know this, 10 were bad and 2 were good. Well, the people got looking at the nations who were in the promised land that they were going to have to dispossess. And they said, they're too big, they're too mighty, they're too incredible. I mean, we, they're like giants and we're like grasshoppers. Not only in their eyes, but are in our own eyes. I mean, how can we conquer them? This is ridiculous. Would that we had died in Egypt, they said. There's no way we can conquer this people or live in this land. They are giants, and we are grasshoppers, so they refused to enter. They refused, as the book of Hebrews said, they refused to enter God's rest. And so God was angry with them for their unbelief. Mark that. God was angry at them for their unbelief. God was angry at them for their unbelief. Listen, had he not rescued them from Egypt by mighty miracles? Had he not brought them through the Red Sea on dry land? Had he not provided for them water from the rock? Had they not seen his terrifying glory on the mountain? Had, they not, had he not led them by pillar of cloud by day and pillar of fire by night? What further evidence would they need in order to believe that he was absolutely trustworthy? And yet they chose to not trust him. He was angry at them for their unbelief. And can I just stop and say here that the only people who ever go to hell are those who say, God, I don't believe you. I'm smarter than you are. I got this figured out. I don't need your help. And So he was angry at them for their unbelief, and so he sent them to wander In that desert that they crossed in five days, they wandered now for 40 years until that unbelieving generation, with the exception of Joshua and Caleb, died, which they did. God then brought them back to the border of the promised land, this time not in Kadesh Barnea, but now up around the east side on the Jordan River. He brought them back to the border of the promised land, and once again he provided for them water from a rock. He took Moses off the scene. He made Joshua the new leader who led them across the Jordan River, now again on dry land, and empowered them to conquer the peoples. And when they entered the land, God reminded them of his covenant once again, He had them go up on two mountains, which are still there today. One is called Mount Gerizim, one is called Mount Nebo. And he said, when you enter the land, I want the priests to split in half. Half of you go on Gerizim, half of you on Nebo, and all of you on Gerizim. Proclaim to the nation of Israel the promises of God's blessing for obedience to his law and his covenant. And on Mount Nebo, proclaim all the curses that will come upon you if you violate his covenant and disobey his law. Do not go in unaware. Full disclosure, this is what's going to happen if you obey and love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this is what's going to happen if you turn your hearts to idols. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't do it. But they did it. When they entered the land, God reminded them of his covenant one more time. And so Israel entered the promised land. They settled in houses they didn't build. They ate from vineyards they had not planted, from crops they didn't sow. They became wealthy, and they became, oh, so comfortable. In fact, they became so wealthy and so comfortable that they no longer needed God. Now they just wanted to be culturally relevant. Oh, don't get me started. And so they looked around and they said, you know what the other nations are doing? Nations aren't led by prophets and judges. They're led by kings. We want a king. We want a king. And so God gave them Saul. And after Saul, God raised up David. And after David, God raised up Solomon who built the great temple of the Lord. And so the kingdom flourished for a hundred years or so. When Solomon died, however, the kingdom of Israel divided into two factions. The northern region of God's people, the larger of the two, became called Israel. They called themselves Israel. The southern kingdom, on the other hand, including Jerusalem, called themselves Judah. Each had their own king. Each had their own military. and They became enemies of one another, for the most part. Once in a while, they worked together to protect themselves. But for the most part, they were at war with one another. They didn't like each other. They had different values. Israel to the north became corrupt as a nation. All of her kings, all of her kings, every single one of her kings were evil without exception. They worshiped Baal. They worshiped Ashtaroth because that's what the other nations worshiped. And God told them, don't intermarry with the other nations because they will turn your heart away from the Lord. And that's exactly what happened. They turned their hearts away from the Lord. God sent his prophets to warn them, to remind them of the covenant, remind remind them, you promised when we entered into this relationship, you'd follow me. What's with the idols? You're headed for trouble. You are headed for disaster. But they didn't listen. And so he sent prophet after prophet after prophet. They stoned them. They killed them. They mocked them. They wouldn't listen. And God was angry at them for their unbelief. They wouldn't trust him. They had broken his covenant and were due all the curses that he had promised. So if you know your Old Testament history, you know that in 722, God sent Assyria to sack Israel and destroyed her. Took her captive, scattered her all over the face of the earth, and Israel would never return. Never return. Meanwhile, in the south, the kingdom of Judah had also asked for kings. They had set up kings, and some of them were good. Most of them, however, were evil. Over the centuries, the people's hearts turned from God to idols. When King Josiah took the throne, uh, his father was an evil king. You talk about the sovereignty of God here. How does an evil father produce a godly son? I don't know. But Josiah was the one who, he started looking around and saying, man, the temple of the Lord is a mess. Aren't we God's people? Let's let's clean it up. Let's let's clean it out. Let's get rid of all the garbage that's been stored there. I mean, it's not even in use anymore. What's going on here? And he started digging around in the temple, in the storerooms that were built as part of the temple structure. And they dug through, and guess what they found? Are you ready for this? They found the Word of God. Nobody had seen it for years. And the priest brought it, and they said, We have found the covenant of the Lord. And Josiah said, Read it to me. And so the priest read all that the Lord had said before Israel entered the promised land. All of the promises, all of the curses, and he began matching up their, their reality, what they were actually experiencing. And, they, and he said, oh no, the reason we're experiencing what we're experiencing is because God is giving exactly what he promised to a, a disobedient people. We are under God's curse and we must repent. Repent. So they did. They went around. They tore down every every idol they could tear down. They went around to every high place and they tore down every Asherah pole they could tear down. And they brought revival to the land. But so many of the key people were still resistant to God that it didn't keep. And so when Josiah entered battle against Egypt that was coming up from the south, he was killed. And his son took his place. And his son was wicked. Josiah died. His son Jehoiakim became king. And of him, the scriptures say these words Jehoiakim was 25 years old when he became king of Israel, of Judah. He reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his fathers had done. He was a wicked king, and he only lasted, I think, three months before something terrible happened. <clears throat> Jehoiakim would be the final king of Judah. During his reign, Babylon would come and destroy Jerusalem and take the survivor, the surviving prisoner to their land where they would live, leading them into captivity for 70 years. They lived in Babylon. If you go to Iraq today to... Just outside Baghdad, not far from Baghdad, you can find the restored um, ruins of Babylon because Saddam Hussein was obsessed with restoring them. In fact, he made a likeness. He had a huge celebration and kind of opening day, grand opening of Babylon. And he made this this big image, isn't that appropriate, uh, of Nebuchadnezzar in the background, and himself in front, in the foreground, and he altered the face of Nebuchadnezzar to make him look more like him. (laughs) Ah, no pride there. Vanity of vanities. And God took him out as well. But Jehoiakim was the final king. You remember Babylon came and took captive all of Judah. Included with them were men like Daniel, the prophet, his name is Ezekiel, prophesied from Babylon. He was in Babylon when he saw the things that are written for us in the book of Ezekiel. But there were a couple of prophets in Jerusalem when all of this was happening. During the reign of Jehoiakim, Habakkuk served as a prophet of the Lord. And these were also the days of the prophets Jeremiah, Zephaniah, and as I said, Ezekiel and Daniel, who were in Babylon, And I have no doubt, no doubt whatsoever, that Habakkuk, in his ministry of preaching the word of God, gave the same message that Jeremiah preached to the inhabitants of Judah as he served the Lord in that place, calling them to repentance. All you have to do is read Jeremiah to find out what the fundamental message of Habakkuk probably was. Both men were appalled at the wickedness and the immorality and unbelief of the Lord's people. Both of them, no doubt, called the nation to repent. But it was too late. The die was cast. The heart had become hard. And it was during this time that Habakkuk wrote his little three-chapter book. Now you know the history of Israel. Now, before we get into Habakkuk, let me just, just as as kind of a parenthesis, tell you the rest of Israel's story. Here's how it went in the Old Testament. They stayed in Babylon for 70 years. At the end of that time, a man by the name of Zerubbabel was led of the Lord because Cyrus the king said, we want to send you back. We want you to go back and build the temple. So you Jewish people, go back and build your temple. And the reason he did that is because he was sending all the nations back to their lands to build temples to their gods so he could have all the gods on his side. That was his thinking. And so the Lord put it on his heart to send God's people back to Jerusalem where they could build the temple. So Zerubbabel went. And guess who went with him? Ezra went with him. And then a little while later, another man by the name of Nehemiah went. And he knew that the other team was building the city, trying to anyway. And building the walls, and you read the book of Haggai, was the prophet who went back, and he saw that the building of the temple wasn't happening really, and so he prophesied to them and said, the Lord wants you to get to work. You're being lazy. You came here to do the job. Get the job done. And then Nehemiah comes, and Nehemiah says there's much work to do, not only on the temple, but we've got to rebuild these walls around this city if we're going to protect this temple and ourselves against God's enemies and ours. And so he rebuilt the walls, and guess what happened? They rebuilt the walls, and the book, the historical record, the the historical sequence of events stops with Nehemiah. You say, wait a minute, Nehemiah is before Psalms. Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, I mean, that's nowhere near Malachi. That's right. Everything after Nehemiah takes place. Somewhere back in what had already been written to that point historically. Isn't that interesting? So, his, historically speaking, your Old Testament sequence of history ends with Nehemiah. But before it ended, we had the whole story of Babylon coming and sacking Jerusalem. And at the beginning of, of Habakkuk's letter, he had no idea that was going to happen. And so now we get to Habakkuk's message. Habakkuk's message. What is the book of Habakkuk about? Now that we've been exhorted to study the Old Testament, and now that we look at this book and we realize its historical place, what is Habakkuk about? Well, I'm out of time. So let me tell you this. Let me give you a brief. I'm just going to skip my notes. I'll use these for next week. I just want you to notice some things. Chapter 1, the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. Verse 2, Habakkuk is speaking. How long, O Lord, will I call for help? And you will not hear. I cry to you, violence, yet you do not save. Verse 4, therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous, therefore justice is. Comes out perverted. Now, who are the wicked that he's talking about? You know who he's talking about? He's not talking about the surrounding nations. He's talking about God's people. This is the significance of the book of Habakkuk. He's saying, God, I don't understand. These people are violating your covenant at every possible turn. They hate you. They love Baal. They love their comfort. They love their security. They love their economic situation because it's good. They hate you. And yet, you're doing nothing about it. I thought you promised that if they broke, if we broke your covenant, you would discipline us. God, where's the discipline? Why aren't you purifying your people? Don't let us go down this road. We're so far down. I'm afraid we're at the point of no return. God, I keep praying for help. I keep praying, help me and Jeremiah proclaim this message, empower it, help the people to repent, and you're not listening. Where are you? Verse five. Starting with verse five, God says, oh, but... I'm not unaware of the situation. In fact, I have a plan. Get ready, Nehemiah, uh, Habakkuk, because you're not going to like the plan. Here's the plan. You remember that country that sacked Nineveh, and everybody thought there's no way Assyria can go down. And yet, remember I made the river swell, and it tore out a section of the wall of Nineveh? Nobody thought that could happen. I raised up Babylon and they ran in and destroyed Nineveh. The new superpower is Babylon, and I am sending them to discipline my people. And then Habakkuk asks a question Wait a minute, Lord. I mean, our situation is bad, but the only thing worse than our situation is the, is the thought that you would send that evil people to discipline us. I mean, look at verse 13. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, right? I mean, how in the world can you justify this, bringing a nation such as they to discipline us? And the Lord responds by saying, oh, but I will judge them for the sins that they would commit against you. I will not violate my law, but I am God. I do as I please with the powers of heaven and the people of earth. and No one can say to me, what have you done? Everything I do is holy and perfect and good. And so prepare yourself, Habakkuk, because they're coming and it's going to be bad. But don't fear. Do not fear. You may lose your life in this. We don't know what happened to Habakkuk after this. He disappears. So does Jeremiah. He gets taken to Egypt. And the Lord says, but don't fear, Jeremiah. Here's my promise. I'm going to bring Judah back. They will not be destroyed. They'll always be my people. Someday I'm going to grant them repentance and give them their land. And all the blessings that I have promised will be theirs someday. Someday. And then Nehemiah, I'm sorry, I keep saying Nehemiah, Habakkuk, writes chapter 3. A prayer, a psalm. Let me give you a sampling of it, verse 3. God comes from Timnah, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covers the heavens, and the earth is full of his praise. His radiance is like the sunlight, and his rays flash. His rays flashing from his hand, and there is the hiding of his power. Before him goes pestilence, and plague comes after him. He stood and surveyed the earth. He looked and startled the nations. Yet, yes, the perpetual mountains were shattered. The ancient hills collapsed. His ways are everlasting. At the end of verse 8, he says that you rode your horses on your chariots, of salvation, you will save. Verse 13, you went forth from for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. And then verse 16, when I heard my inward parts trembled, when I heard what God was going to do, scared the fire out of me. My inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay entered my bones and in my place I trembled because I must wait quietly for the day of distress, for the people to arise who will invade us. But though the fig should not blossom and there be no fruit in the vines, though the yield of the olive should fail and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold and there be no cattle in the stalls, yet I will exalt in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength, and he has made my feet like the feet of a deer hind's feet and makes me walk on my high places. Bring it on, Lord. Like Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, yours Lord yours Habakkuk was a model of covenant faithfulness wherever you go I'll follow whatever you tell me to do I will do when you bless I will enjoy every moment of it and when you curse I will say with Job he gives and takes away He gives and takes away. He gives and he takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now that's a message we need to hear, beloved. If we are going to be a light to this world, we must learn to live like this. If we're ever going to reach the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must learn to live like this. Being a whiny, faithless Christian never inspired anybody to trust in Jesus. But in faithfulness, when you see God provide for you again and again and again and again and never fail to lead you in the paths of righteousness, and you respond with contentment and with joy in the midst of sorrow, there is no explanation for that. Nor is there an explanation for a church like this where people from Different races come together and worship the true God in spirit and in truth with joy. People must look at it and say, only God could do that. They need to be able to look at your family and say, only God could do that. They need to be able to look at your marriage and say, only God could do that. The only way that's going to happen is if you develop by practice the attitude of the the prophet Habakkuk. He loved God. He loved God's people. He hated sin. He was devoted to prayer. We're going to see next week, unlike all the other prophets who heard a voice from God, heard a message and proclaimed it, Habakkuk didn't hear anything from God. And he approached God himself in prayer. Prayer. This was the praying prophet. This is the rejoicing prophet. This is the singing prophet. You know how I know that? Look at the last line for the choir director on my stringed instruments. He played the guitar. (laughs) He sang God's praise. He probably died there, but he finished well. May we be found faithful to do the same. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. (laughs) I'm always amazed at your word, Lord. I, I never know what you're going to to reveal to us every time we open another page of your book. But you're so good. We praise you, Father, for loving us. Praise you, Father, for being for us everything you've promised to be in Jesus. I praise you that you give and take away you're always good and you always have our own best interest at heart and for most of us in the room Lord you have revealed yourself to be God and Christ our Savior But I'm confident there are people hearing my voice right now who don't know you maybe thought they did at one point and have turned their backs on you for whatever reason I pray Father that you would Moving their hearts by your Spirit today to call them to repent and believe and to be blessed, and to know the joy of sins forgiven, and to know the power of your Spirit to change them and to take away the old life of unrighteousness and sin that causes pleasure for a moment but misery in the end and death finally. Oh, Father, I pray that you would grant them a new heart today that they would have an unexplainable desire to know the Lord Jesus and to make him known. And so, Father, we give you praise and thanksgiving for what you're doing in our hearts and your people and those you're drawing to Christ. Make it so, Father, for your glory and for our own incredible and eternal joy. For we pray it in Jesus' name.